Hey guys, my name is Alex. Uh, for those, those that don't know, I uh, have the honor of directing the teams here uh, at NCC. And my wife and I moved here about a year ago, and we've been, we've been loving it. We love NCC. We love Pastor Philip and Pastor Destiny and, and the team here. Come on, y'all give it up for NCC staff, the pastors that are here. Come on, they make everything possible. It's incredible. So good to be here. Well, guys, tonight uh, I have the honor for the next couple weeks of sharing on this idea of, of discipleship. But I want you to know, I want you to leave here encouraged. That's my goal. I want, to leave, I want you to leave here equipped and empowered. I want you to know more than anything else that God is for you. I want you to get a hold of that in your heart. More than anything else is that the creator knows you and is for you. And I'm telling you, if it, right now, if you could just, if you could have that, that that's it. We could leave here tonight saying that something was done. What is a disciple? It's something we've talked about, but a disciple is a learner, to put it simply. In your notes, you can put that down. What's a disciple? Disciple equals, it's a learner. A disciple is someone who's consumed with the idea of being like someone else. Consumed with it. It's, it's, you know, I text a friend of mine who's a lot smarter than me, and I said, man, what would you say is like a modern-day disciple? And he, he gave me a really couple of really great examples. It, it's like a gang. It's like someone who, who, who sells their life to be a part of something else bigger than themselves and to be a part of it and to identify with it. Or to put it like the, like the military, the room, it's, it's like the Marines, right? Simplify, it's all the way. It's, it's, it's what, I mean, it's, it becomes their identity. It's, 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 it's identity forming, it's consuming. Let's just put like this, by the time you leave, you're, you're, you're different than what you came in as. A disciple's like that. It's more than just a student. It's someone who says, I, I don't want to just know what you know. I want to be who you are. you got to get that. That discipleship is more than just a mental ascent, head knowledge, where you just know a lot about the teacher. You know a lot about Jesus. You know a lot about the Bible. But it's someone where you are, you are obsessed with becoming like that person in their character. I want to feel what they feel. I want to think the way they think. That's the depth. That's the severity of discipleship. Biblically, a disciple of Jesus then is someone who's consumed with being like him. They're convinced that he's someone that's worth being like in every way. But the challenge is, how do we become like him? That is the challenge. We're 2,000 years removed from Jesus. We have a book about him, not a, not a podcast or a video. And in that, in terms of books, I mean, if you're trying to look for other books about this Jesus, there, there are not many outside of the Gospels. It's hard to find an historical Jesus outside of a biblical lens. It's hard to find it. The only way you really get to know him is with this book. And yet we know that he was an historical figure. We know that he really lived. We know that it was Jesus of Nazareth. He, he was a Jewish man in the Middle East. We know that about him. We also know that he's spirit and, and we don't see him. And so I'm talking about somebody where all there is is a book about him. There's not a video. And, and you want to you mirror your whole life after him. It's challenging. Because what does he look like? I want to be like him, but it feels so distant. Do you guys feel the challenge? It's not as easy. And then additionally, how do we become like him in the midst of the things that so easily distract us? Bills, kids, marriage, a business, what have you. 
it becomes distracting. And so you can see how easily it, it becomes not a, dis, a consuming process, but a categorized process in our life. Where we say, I want to be like Jesus, but man, all these other things. And then there's this distant, distant book that hangs in the balance. And it becomes this spacey thing of like, how do I become like Jesus? But what I've found is that, and if, if I shared a message a few weeks ago about this, is I found that a disciple, what discipleship looks like for us today is it looks like beholding Jesus through reflection. It looks like belonging to Jesus through repentance, identifying with him. And it looks like behaving like Jesus, obviously, through reaching, through helping, through serving. But this is where I would, say, I would add to that and say that this is where scripture is central. There is no discipleship without the Bible. It, it, community is primary. It's primary in discipleship. It's hard to be a disciple in isolation when you're completely alone. You become a disciple in a community of other people. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit is the means. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so I want us to spend some time together unpacking this first part of discipleship, really. Really the beginning of discipleship, beholding Jesus. See, I don't believe it's a one-time affair, but I think it's a lifetime pursuit of beholding him. We never once look at him and say, I, I, I've seen him and that's it. We, 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 we saw and then we, we look again and we see something else and okay, he's a teacher and he's a healer and, and there he is hanging on the cross. I mean, who is this Jesus? We constantly, constantly, a disciple of Jesus is in the constant state of beholding him, attempting to behold him. And so what we're going to do for these next couple of weeks is we're going to go to the words of who I believe arguably is probably the greatest disciple of Jesus who ever lived. Paul, in the Bible, he wrote most of the New Testament. Some people would say John, who wrote Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John the Beloved, John's Gospel. He, some would say that he's the greatest disciple. I would say Paul is probably the greatest follower of Jesus who ever lived. And this is, this is Paul's words in 2nd Corinthians 3.18. He says this, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is, who is the Spirit. Let's, um, let's pray. Is that all right? I feel like I need to pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are, God. I thank you for tonight. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and lives. God, people are here, I'm here, Lord, because we wanna look more like you. We believe that you have the words of life. We believe that you're the one who has the answers. And so God, we're coming to you right now. Would you speak to our hearts? Holy Spirit, do more than what I can do here. Have your way. Mm. God, we wanna leave here changed. Open our eyes, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. See, I believe Paul in just a few sentences is explaining his entire discipleship method in just this sentence. Let's read it again. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is more than just Paul laying out something to prove a point. This is Paul's discipleship method. Paul says, you want to look like Jesus. You want to be consumed. You want to live your life looking like him. This is how you do it. 
And what we see when we, when we unpack this, and we're going to spend the next couple weeks unpacking really this one verse. We're going to see the genius of God. And we're going to see that, that there is a way to become more like him, even in the face of responsibilities that we have today. There's a way to do that. Come on, how many of you believe that? Yes. Paul said this. He says, and we all with unveiled, unveiled face, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Another translation says, we are seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror. Paul's really, it's really interesting. He's using this, a Greek word, katsapritso. Uh, it literally means to gaze upon as in a mirror. Everybody say mirror. Now, when I say mirror, Paul's not talking about a mirror like we have today that is perfectly vivid and clear, that gives a perfect reflection. I mean, you just glance once, you can see the nose hair sticking out. You see it all. Very good mirror. We have very good mirrors. But back then, mirrors weren't so good. They weren't, they weren't as vivid. And so they took more of a casual glance. If someone were to use the mirror back then, they used, you know, shaved metal that was really finely shaved. And, and so they, when they looked in the mirror, they couldn't just glance. They had to stare. They had to really gaze into this mirror to catch all the blemishes, to really catch the beauty of what they were looking at. And so Paul, I think, has so carefully chosen, chosen his word to really emphasize how disciples of Jesus are steadily spending time contemplating and reflecting and beholding the Lord. Beholding is about a studied contemplation of something. The fame, the facts, and the fate of Jesus Christ. It's more than a glance. It's beholding the glory of the Lord as though you're looking in a mirror that's not so finely tuned. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? See Jesus. Well, it's, it's wrapped up in a book, and I have to read the words, and I have to think about them, and I have to really dig into them. It's like a mirror that's not quite perfectly reflecting, and I have to really spend time seeing it. But when I see it, I see it. And anyone, anyone who's ever beheld God, anyone who's beheld Jesus, has always left changed. Always. And so as we reflect and we behold and we steadily contemplate, we are transformed, Paul says, on the inside by the Holy Spirit. Please get that. That there is something, and you gotta forgive me because I'm, I'm a bit of a mystic here on this. You gotta go with me for a second, right? It's not so formulaic. You're telling me that if I simply behold something, if I behold him, something on the inside is going to change in me? Because really, what else in life really truly does that to that magnitude? We go to the Grand Canyon. We go to the Eiffel Tower. We, we see our firstborn baby born. We, we, we see things that are magnificent and beautiful, and they change us. They do. We're changed after we saw that. But what Paul is saying is that when you really behold Jesus, you're, you don't, you're not just reformed better. You are transformed on the inside out. And so transformation, life change, truly happens through beholding. And this is why discipleship begins with that. This, this is what I would submit to you. Christianity isn't about doing more, but looking more. 
Christianity is not about just doing more. It's about looking more. And that offends us. It offends our religious senses when I say that. Because the law and religion says that you need to do more in order to be changed. But Jesus is saying, I am so enough I am so beautiful. I am so majestic. I am so powerful. I am God. That when you behold me, that will be enough. You will be changed on the inside out. You will be transformed. Christianity is is not about doing more, but looking more. Looking more to him. Because truly our temptation is is, is, is in our own effort to attempt to be like him but without ever relying on him. And that's the law, my friends. That is the law. I can achieve the right life through my own effort. That is the law. And there have been many men and women who have lived that better than you and I, I promise you that. Look at a Jewish man's life over the last 2,000 years. You'll say, am I even saved? But yet the Bible declares that that is not enough. No matter how much you do in your own effort, it will not be enough because Christianity is not about doing more. It's about looking more to him. See, we can easily fall into seeing the Bible as a way for us simply to live right despite Jesus rather than seeing it as a means to see Jesus who empowers us to live right. God is a God of motive. He's a God of why. You, there's two instances in the Bible, I don't have time to go over this, but there are two instances in the Bible where men took it upon themselves to kill and take another man's life, and God killed one of them, and God celebrated the other. The what was the same, but the why was different, and that's why he did it, because God is a God of motive. Two men can do the same religious act, and God says to one, not enough, you've missed it, and look to the other one and say, you've caught it, because God is a God of motive. It's not about doing more. It's about looking more. And when you behold, you're transformed. And when you're transformed, then you'll behave. That's the gospel. And the temptation for all of us is a fight of faith. Do we believe that it's enough? Because everyone in this room has mentally assented to, to Jesus and the cross. But is it enough? And that's why we just glance in the mirror and we say, I saw it, and we move on. And we look for something else that's going to cause the life change. But Christianity is about staring and looking and contemplating and beholding until we see him. And when we see him, again, I know I sound like a broken record, but I want you to get it tonight. That transformation happens through beholding first. You see, I think the trick is that when we quit to behold, when we quit trying to behold, we quit looking to him. And I find this is that we have a lot of people who are doing a lot for him but don't have his character. Right? They have the talent, they have the skill, they look good, they look Christian, they look Bible, they look church. But don't have, you you meet them one-on-one and it's like, oh man, you're not like Jesus at all. Wow. Come on, you ever met somebody like that? Come on. (laughs) Right? That's because someone who says, you know, I've emphasized my Christianity is doing more rather than looking more. That's what that means. That's what that is. It's it's a transformation. 
You know, it's funny, when we think about being like Jesus and we look at who Jesus is in the Gospels, when we look at it, it's so funny that Jesus lived a spirit-empowered life. He was one of miracles. He was one where he depended upon God. He depended upon God for his life. Think about his very birth. He was born of the Virgin Mary miracle. He was raised from the dead by the Spirit miracle. It's nothing he did. It's what God did through him, did in him. It's by the Holy Spirit. He did his miracles by the Holy Spirit. Think about what I'm saying. And so think about it. If you're trying to be like him, then what are you trying to be like? You're trying to be like one who depends upon God fully. It's not through effort, but it's through his empowerment. And so instead of doing more, we look more, we look more, we look more to him. Are you guys getting this? Here's what I believe. I believe God is not interested in reformed people, but transformed people. And that's where I'm trying to get it. I'm saying the same thing 15 different ways because I want you to get it. God is not interested in reformed people. We've seen that. It's about transformed people. I love what C.S. Lewis says. I, I love his analogy. He always stuck with me. He said, we always often think that what Jesus will do is Jesus will take a homeless man, crazy beard, crazy hair, dirt, terrible clothing, and we think that the work that Jesus does in a person is he takes that man, he sits him down, he cuts his hair, trims his beard, cleans him up, puts him in the nicest suit that he could find, and says, look at what I've done. But truly what Jesus does, what the Bible says Jesus does, is Jesus will take that homeless man and he transforms him into a pegasus. Into something that is not of this world. Something that looks totally different. And we think that's, what, that's all that Jesus came to do is to make really good people. Really good reformed people. You know, the military can do that. But what Jesus has come to do is to transform men and women, into vessels for a kingdom that is not of this earth. Transformation. Transformation comes through beholding, and we are to behold until we're transformed. And that's our doubt, isn't it? Is that I've looked, yeah, but have you beheld? I've beheld, but have you beheld long enough? I I did some, I did look more. Look more until you see. Look more until you see. Did not God say, did not Jesus say, knock and the door will be open? He asked, he said, if you ask, I will give you more. Right? He said, seek and you will, you will find. That's a promise. Jesus said this in John 15, 5. Very familiar passage. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them they will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul is saying. Who knew Paul would follow and be a good disciple of Jesus? That the high emphasis and demand on bearing fruit, doing more is dependent upon remaining, on abiding. Intimacy that comes from spending time with him, beholding him. Coming to know his thoughts, his emotions, his character, his passion. And the byproduct of this beholding, this remaining, this reflecting, is that there's fruit. And he promises that. Again, 
This is the words of Jesus. He said that. That the secret of fruitfulness is living in connection with Jesus. That's the secret. Isn't that? That's the secret. It truly is. It's not the performance. It's not the show. Jesus said, what you do in private will be made known in public. Your private place is is showing right now. (laughs) That sounds weird. But that's what it's about. That's what it's about. Jesus says, if you will abide in me, remain in me, you will bear fruit. Yet again, there's this theme that as I behold, I'm transformed. And so I behold long enough until I'm transformed. I remain. I look. I look more. I don't try to do more. I look more first. And then that happens. You know, I think this should change the way we pray. I think sometimes we pray, Lord, help me to live the life for you. Come on, I prayed that, right? Lord, help me to live this life for you. No, but as I think about this, I think that a better prayer would be, Lord Jesus, live your life through me. Live your life through me. Have your way. You know, it's like, God, I still got the wheel, so join me in my effort. Ah, it's not about doing more. It's about looking more. And the more you're convinced of his provision and how he is the source and how he is provisional in everything in your life, the more you're convinced that he is fully sufficient to take care of you and your desires in every way, the more you will, look, the more you will let him live his life through you. But that comes from beholding him. And then when we behold him, we trust him. And when we trust him, we let go and we let him. And we do things that we never thought we would do because it's not us living, it's him. This is why Paul said, it's not me who live, right? It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the secret. The secret of his his connection to Jesus, it's beholding Jesus. Paul says, you are going to be transformed into the same image from one degree of, of glory to another. You know, I love about that is that Paul's saying that it's a progressive transformation in our lives as we behold. You know, only Jesus was transfigured instantaneously. Only Jesus went on the mountain, he was transfigured like that. You know, I've never met anybody who does that other than him. You know, no one is, is a perfect white blank slate here, right? But it's, it's, it's an encouragement because our character is slowly, slowly being turned inward, turned inwardly towards him. As we behold. And that's the other thing is that sometimes we, we, be, we behold and, and we behold and we see a little bit and we see that's enough. Or we behold and we behold and we don't see anything until we've done it for some years. Am I right? This is why some of us, if we go to God for just a quick fix and we get the fix, we can end up missing him. Right? We get the handout and God answers the prayer, and then we, but we, we don't spend enough time with him to get to know him. And he's like, oh, okay, see you next time you have a problem, which is always, you know. It's, it's a progressive thing where our character is being formed into his likeness as we have beheld him. And so it's, it's getting up in the morning, you got work, and you beheld him. You reflected on who he is, his character. Something that you always knew clicked. And now it's got your attention like it's never done before. And you're going throughout the day and 
instead of thinking about how much you hate your job and how much your wife doesn't give you what you need or how much your husband didn't take care of you the way you thought or what your kids are doing or thinking about everything else, you're thinking about that. It's got your attention. It's got your heart. And you're thinking about that. A few weeks go by and all of a sudden you start noticing that a difference is happening in your attitude and your disposition. Something's changing. You're being transformed. And it wasn't overnight. It was a few weeks. Something happened. You just chose to behold. And God says, if you will behold, I'll do the work of transforming. But I need you to behold. And some of us, we say, you know, it's so funny. They did a research, uh, this study, they did a research, and they looked at over 6,000 Bible readers in the U.S. This is a few years ago. And they found that uh, most people read their Bibles in the morning, most people, you know, all that jazz. But they said that the number one barriers that people had, the number one barrier people had, and they believed, is, um, is that they didn't have enough time. And I just think it's so funny because, you know, we, get, we have like ten to 20,000 thoughts a day that are instantaneous that I can choose to reflect on. Even while I'm mopping, changing a diaper, doing dishes, even as I'm figuring out some budget, I can still reflect. If something may have your hands, it doesn't mean that it has to have your heart in that moment. And you can sit and reflect and contemplate, study the mirror, look into the reflection, peer into it, behold, and trust that God is doing that work on the inside because he promises that he is. The good news is that eventually, eventually, over time, the more we follow the Lord. I love meeting people who've, who've followed Jesus and have truly beheld him longer than me. I love meeting with them. I love hearing where, where they've been because it's just such a signpost for me, isn't it? And for me anyway, I'm just like, wow, that's where I'm headed. Awesome. You know, it's like, wow, they're so kind. They're so patient. It's not even their temperament. Wow. You know, like something was on the inside of them. Come on, have you ever met, how many, how many of you have ever met someone where it's like, you walk saying, man, that's what Jesus is like. Have you ever met somebody like that? A few of you in the room? I know that I have. There's a few people in life, I'm like, that is Jesus. I'm pretty sure that's the Lord. <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I met Jesus just now. And someone just, and, and we would say, oh, they're lucky. Oh, they're so close with God. No, they've just spent a lot of time beholding him, thinking about him, looking to him. They caught it. That it's not about doing more, it's about looking more. And then something has done, something's happened on the inside. They've beheld him. The good news is that eventually you and I, we will experience an instantaneous transformation. And the Bible calls it the resurrection. You and I, one day, will be instantaneously transformed to look like him bodily in every way. And we will rule and reign with him forever. That's where we're headed. We're going to get into that. So we behold, we behold God. And when we do that, it leads to transformation. But we also behold because often we have the wrong idea about God. Often we have a picture of what God is like, but it's not a complete one, is it? We know God imperfectly. And so we, we sit and behold. It's like looking through a glass that's not so clear, and we see parts, we see reflections, until one day, all will be revealed, and we will see perfectly, 1 Corinthians 13, we will know perfectly, we will see perfectly, 
but for now we don't. And so we behold because we're never quite satisfied with what we've seen of God because there's always more to see. And we don't ever claim to know that we know God completely. And a good mark of that, right, is First John. He says, if you know me, what, how will you know if you know me? By your love. It's by your love. And so as we look at our love thermometer in our life, in every walk of life, in every area of life, from strangers to marriage to kids, how we love ourselves, how we love God, I mean, the, all the gamut, we should always behold God because, man, God, I want to grow in love as you are. And I want to know you because I don't see you perfectly. The other part of this is that we have a human tendency to always confuse what we know in our heads versus what we know in our hearts. Always. Always. It's, it's human nature. You will always confuse something that you think you know with what you've really experienced in your heart. I don't know what that is. But that's the human tendency of why we need to behold constantly. Because I don't want to ever think that I have knew about God and I didn't really know God. And I can, there's a lot of people who know about God and really imperfectly in that way and then try to do a lot for God. And then we find ourselves where Jesus said we would be. God, I did all things in your name. I did all of this. And God's like, who's you? I don't know you. You didn't do it by my power, by your own wits and, and wager, by maybe something demonic, but you didn't do that by my name. I don't know you. Oh, you know about me. You're a fan. You're not a follower. Oh, okay. You see, you've confused knowing about me with really beholding me and knowing me. You've confused being a fan with being a follower. Oh, okay. And he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. There's this human tendency for us to hold things in our heads and not hold them in our heart. And so this is what we do. And this is the lure of the American church the last 50 years since Billy Graham, is we come to church on Sunday, we hear something about God that mentally makes sense, but it never quite makes the journey to our heart because we don't reflect, we don't steadily contemplate, we don't behold, and we think about other things. And we treat it like a, like a checkbox and we move on to the next thing. Even with sincerity, we don't behold I'm not saying that's you in the room, right? That's none of us in the room. I'm just saying that's some people. And so I love what Paul says later on to another church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1. He prays for them of, I want you to know what you have in Christ. I want you to behold it. Not just know about it. I want you to behold it. I want you to really, really know in your heart. And this is what he prays. One of my favorite, favorite apostolic prayers. Paul says this. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So that, everybody say so that. So that with the eyes of your heart enlightened. Let's read that one more time. So that with the eyes of your what? Your heart enlightened. Did he say head? Oh, he said heart that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know, gnosko, you may not just mentally ascend, you may know experientially. You may say, I have beheld, I have been there. I didn't just read about the Eiffel Tower in the book, I smelled the sea breeze when I was there. I felt the, the biscay the, in the air. As I was there, I saw it. Experience. 
I want you to know in your heart, not just in your head, Paul says. And I pray that you would know it, that you may know what? Three things, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? Paul says this, he said, I want you to know God, and so I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Something you need to know about God is that God reveals himself, and he wants to be known. God isn't just some God who's, you know, it's such a translucent mirror because of the fall that happened because of sin that marred the image. That's why the mirror is not perfectly reflected as it should be. That's why we're not perfect image bearers of God because of sin. We don't reflect God and what he's like perfectly anymore until Christ. And so we, don't, God, so we see a God who wants to reveal himself, and he's revealing himself with a mirror that's marred until Christ comes, who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the perfect image of what he's like. And then took up stones to kill him. What we also find about this is that the Holy Spirit can reveal knowledge, knowledge of God to our hearts. That's why Paul's praying that. I pray that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Trinity, would reveal who God is who wants to be known. Again, we can have the wrong idea about God, right? And so we behold to get the right idea of him. We can all get to know God better as we behold to find out that he really is better more and more. Every one of us can do that. I love what, that's why Paul said, he said, we all with unveiled faces, beholding glory, we all, not just some pastor or preacher or holy man, not just Moses, not just some man of God, we all can. No matter what walk of life, no matter what present history that you have, no matter where you came from, you can know God in your heart. You can fully know him. After all, this is where we're headed anyway. Revelations. The apocalypse, the end times. Apocalypse, literally, it's not about just the end of days. Apocalypse literally means to uncover, to reveal, to disclose, to let you in on the true story. It's the revelation. It's where we're headed. The end times is about a great revealing. It's no wonder that the last book in the Bible is Revelation. And it's not just this insider knowledge about the end days. It's like the sign of the blood moon. What Putin's doing, it's the sign of the end times. We miss it. Because the whole book of Revelation is like the fifth gospel. It's about the divinity of Jesus and how he wins. So think, think about it. You're on the trajectory of discovering who God really is, whether you like it or not. A revelation is coming. The apocalypse, right? The apocalypto, the disclosure, the full disclosure of what God is really like and who he really is, is headed our way. That's where we're headed. And so we're headed for the greatest revelation of Jesus the world has ever known. That's where you and I are going. That's where time and history is headed. You know, some of us are wondering, it's like, where is this? What's the meaning of life? And where's, you know, our country? Where's this country going? And where's the world going? And gosh, where are we all headed? This is where we're headed. We're heading towards a revelation a great revealing of King Jesus. That's where you and I are headed. He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the man with eyes of fire who cannot be deceived or manipulated. 
full of power and might, who overcomes the world and the enemy. Revelations 19, I mean, look at Revelations 19. Jesus shows up to battle, and guess what? There's no battle. Everyone just falls and dies because he's Lord. Read it. Read Revelations 19. There's no battle that takes place. All the nation's armies gather, and Satan and the prophet, the Antichrist, and he shows up with us, uh, by the way, clothed in white. He shows up. There's not even a battle. People just start dying. People just start laying down. He's like, yes, that's, I, I've told you I was king. Here I am, and we see it now. And it's why Paul penned it in 1 Corinthians 13. There's going to come a time where all will be revealed. What are we headed towards? We're not headed towards end times, bad times, pre-trib, post-trib, caught in heaven, go here, go there. We're not caught in that. We're headed towards a great revelation of Jesus. That's what, that's what the believer should be yearning to know and hear and, and, and see, the return of Jesus. Why? So we can fully see him. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John touch on Jesus' divinity, but Revelation, it's all about Jesus' divinity. He is God. You can learn about, more about God in your life, I find, by kneeling and beholding than all the seminaries and colleges in the world. There's been stories, and I, there's been stories of, of, um, of, uh, I'll bear you, I'll scare, uh, if you want to know a little more about the details, I'll tell you later if, if you want to. But there's a guy in Scotland. He's a he's a he's a professor, and he he goes and he meets with some of the parishioners that are that are out there, and he's meeting with some, and he's like he tells about this time that he met with uh, an older lady who's uh, who's literate. She can't um, she can't read or write, very very uh, very poor, and he meets with her and talks with her, and he um, but she listens. She'll like go to church. She'll hear stories. She'll go to the study groups. Like she she prays a lot, and. Uh, and long story short, he shares a story about, about like some scripture, like John, you know, John whatever, John 17, John 18, whatever. And, uh, and so she's like starts going off uh, about her observations of that scripture. And he's just like, what? How do you, how do you know this? And, and, she, and, and what she told him was like, I, I don't know, but I just, I spend my time on my knees and I ask God to reveal himself to me. And this is what I know. You know, I'm in seminary right now, and, and I'll tell you, I've, I, I would say that I've learned more about God alone in my dorm room, on my knees before I, I met my beautiful wife, and I learned more about God just being alone, not knowing what the heck I was reading, but just being hungry to know him. I've learned more about God in that moment than I've ever learned. That doesn't demerit seminary. I'm paying for it. That doesn't merit colleges or coming on a Wednesday night Bible study, that doesn't merit that, right, at all, but it shouldn't be the primary thing. We all, by the Spirit, can come to know God. But I think the problem is that maybe we don't want to rely on the Holy Spirit to teach us these things about God. Maybe a lack of fear that he's not going to meet us. Maybe that we're not going to hear him, or he's not really going to talk. We're not going to sense that. We'd rather have someone like Someone like me, a, a pastor or a preacher, come up and, and tell you about him and teach you. Rather than let the Holy Spirit, alone in your room, speak to your heart. You know, John 14, 26, Jesus said this of the Holy Spirit, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. In Christ, you have the Holy Spirit who will teach you things and give you knowledge.
Transformation happens when you behold. And you have a God who says, I want to be known. You have the Holy Spirit in you who will reveal and teach you things. I think God is setting you up for revelation. I think God is setting you up to see him like you've never saw him before in your heart, not just your head. I think God is setting you up for that, right? Right? Paul said this, he says, I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Paul prays that the lights will go on on the inside of people, not just in the heads of people, but the light would be turned on on the inside so that people would really know God and understand the benefit of the gospel. That's what he's saying. The eyes of your heart's enlightened. It sounds so spiritual. But what he's saying is, I don't want it just in your head. I want it to ignite something in your heart. It's not enough that you mentally ascend. You mentally understand. It matters if you know in the heart. You know, you can be brilliant intellectually, but have no guarantee that there would be any understanding of true spiritual truth. No understanding of it. Scripture puts more emphasis on the understanding of the heart than the head nine times out of ten. It's not that you, you are very smart, you are educated, very educated compared to the rest of the world. For every single person standing here, if you have a high school diploma, you are very smart compared to most of the world in terms of education, intellectual. There's no doubt that you mentally know. There's no doubt. But there is a doubt if you know it in your heart. There is a doubt of that. And every single one of us should constantly ask ourselves, did I let, did I let what I know drift down to my heart? Holy Spirit, teach me. Are you guys okay? He says this, I want you to know three things. I want you to know, I want you to know the hope to which you've been called. Your future has changed entirely in Christ, he's saying. And it impacts your day-to-day living. God, God's present call in your life has that impact. And so think about this, if you're destined to rule and reign with him, because that's your hope a resurrection, and to eternally reign with him. That's that's where you're headed. And if that's true, he says that should have a bearing on how you you work at your job, how you manage your finances. If I'm going to be assisting the king and the Lord of lords at ruling and reigning on this earth, I want to be really faithful over my finances today. I want to show that I'm a good steward over the people I manage and lead today. I want to be the kind of person that when no one's around and how I talk to my wife, I want to make sure I talk to her a certain way because that's a display of my leadership. Because one day I'm going to be eternally reigning with Jesus Christ. I know the hope to which I've been called. It's in my heart. And I want to live that way because that's where I'm headed. Paul says, I want, I want how God has changed your future because you were headed to hell. I want that to change how you live today. And the only way that's going to happen is if you have a revelation of the hope that which you've been called. And it's on the inside. It changes the way you see things. He only says this, I want you to also know about the glory, his glorious inheritance. I want you to see, what Paul's saying is I want you to see yourself differently. That you are God's inheritance. Do you know that you're the one that God is waiting for? That you were God's special possession. That you're not just some obscure family name with a history. That God, you were God's treasured possession in Christ. This is why I love, I love talking to another Christian and calling them 
beloved. It's just, I'm not old enough for it not to be creepy. You know, but one day when I'm like older, like I'm in my like, you know, like really old, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to say it all the time. Oh, beloved, come here. Grown men, I don't care what, you know, bigger, I'm like, beloved, come here. It's like Chris. I'm like, like Chris, I'm like, Chris, beloved, come here. God loves you. Because you are. And that's, that's, what, that's what Paul wants you to know is that you are God's inheritance. And that would be made known to you. And when, when other people disrespect you, disrespect you and, and the boss overlooks you and your marriage is not where it should be and your finances are not where it should be and you're trying to build your value on what you can do and attain and it's keep, you keep failing, you can always go back to this fact that you are God's treasured possession. You're the inheritance that he waits to reveal. That's who you are. And Paul says, man, if you knew, if you knew what God, the hope that he's called you to, if you knew that you are God's special inheritance that he's waiting on, you would live differently. You would be transformed on the inside if you really beheld that in Christ. Come on, everybody say this with me. I am his possession. One more time. I am his treasured possession. Do you know that? That God's plans and what he has planned for us, he has you in mind. He does. He has you in mind about how he's going to reveal everything, about how he's going to uncover who he is. You know, like, look at, look at Revelation 19 again. When Jesus shows up, he doesn't just show up alone, even though he could and should because he's king. What does he do? He shows up with his faithful followers. That's who he shows up with. Did you know that? So he says, I'm not just going to reveal me. I'm going to reveal all of us who have represented me. This is my inheritance. This is what I've been waiting on. This is my moment. And I want it with you. And you know, when you really think about that, man, you, you can be the most insignificant person in human eyes. But when, man, when you really have that heart revelation, there's, no, there's nothing man can say about you when you know that. Come on. There's nothing that could ever discourage you if you know that you're his treasured possession. The thing he waits on. He waits for me to arrive. Mm. Paul says this, not only I want you to know the hope that you're called to and his glorious inheritance, I want you to know the power. I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. Disciples of Jesus should not, disciples of Jesus should know that the same mighty energizing power that rose Christ from the dead, and not only rose him from the dead, but ascended him, seated him at the right hand of the Father, that same power is in us. Think about that for a moment. Anytime that I get afraid, anytime I I start thinking, like we all think, right, that one day I'm going to die. One day, my heart's going to give out. One day, I'm going to die. And a little bit of fear wants to rise up, right? That's natural. My heart goes straight to what? This truth. That the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, which the resurrection is a historical fact. It's an historical fact. It is in me. And not only that, I have the power, if that same power to overcome death is in me, maybe I can overcome any trial that comes my way. 
Maybe I have more than enough on the inside of me to overcome internal battles and marital battles. Maybe I can overcome psychological battles. Maybe I can overcome because of the power that is on the inside of me. And Paul says, man, if you only knew what is the immeasurable, you can't even measure it, the immeasurable power, dunamis, that is on the inside of you. The same power that rose Christ from the dead and is seated in by the Father. It would change the way you live. What is Paul saying in broad strokes? Man, if you really beheld, you would be transformed. And it would change how you live your day to day. That's what he's saying. That you just won't mentally ascend to it, but you would hold these things in your heart. Things that, the things I've said tonight are things that you already know about. You know about it. When was the last time you reflected on that? And you were driving in your car and you just started randomly thinking about this. That's beholding. That's contemplating. That's reflecting. That's getting it from head to heart. It becomes a part of who we are. It becomes a part of our life. A disciple of Jesus spends time thinking, reflecting, contemplating Jesus, beholding his glory and his fame. He is our hope. We are his possession. And he has given us power. To Paul's point, I think one of the most beautiful examples of this that I've ever seen is in Acts 7, as we look at Stephen. It says this about Stephen. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of the Lord. What did he see? He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Which, by the way, a little side note, last time I read the Bible, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So obviously, Jesus, Jesus is giving Stephen a, a standing ovation. He's standing by the Father. And Stephen says this, look, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I see it. And at this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, whom we have read about, right? We've read his words tonight, the greatest disciple ever lived. Verse 59, it says that while they were stoning him, Jesus pray, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's go to Luke 23, 34. Jesus is on the cross and he said, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Sounds a lot like Jesus' last words on the cross. What I love about this is that as we behold, our inner life becomes more like his, doesn't it? Look at Stephen. Beholding Jesus showed and displayed in his last moments on earth a display of Jesus' character like, like never before. You know how many people go on their deathbed with resentments? Look at Stephen. The very people who killed him are taking his life. God, don't hold it against them. That's the character of Jesus. That's something Jesus would do. Stephen beheld Jesus. 
and ended up being like Jesus. We behold Jesus in two ways. And then uh, I want us to spend some time. I want us to spend uh, maybe our last five or ten minutes together. I want us to spend some time reflecting together as a community. How do you guys feel about that? But there's two ways that we behold Jesus. The first way is we behold Jesus in Scripture. Psalm 119 says this, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I live as an alien in the land. Do not hide your commandments from me. This is the spirit, the ethos. This is the heart of someone when we open up the Bible. We open it with a blank page, a blank heart. Open my eyes. I'm an alien in this land. I don't belong here. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know that you do. It's not coming to the Bible with answers. It's coming to the Bible looking for him who has all the answers. This is the genius of God, that he didn't leave us a video or podcast. He didn't come in the the 21st century. He left us a book. And we have scriptures. And it's something that we must read and, and think on and not just glance at. The Bible is something that you must behold and contemplate and reflect on. We see the unveiled Jesus in scriptures as we spend time beholding him. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and active. Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. For those that are taking notes, if if you have not memorized and read Hebrews 4.12, it's it's a scripture that you, you need to have in your back pocket. You need to know. When the enemy wants to cause doubt in your heart about the word of God. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of thoughts and intentions of the heart. It'll peer to the marrow of your bone. It's alive and has the ability to transform you on the inside. The Bible does that as you see Christ on the pages of the Bible. And again, it's, it's, and so some of us are like, well, I read my Bible, and, and I know you do, and, and it's like, I'm, I bet you probably know it better than I do, but it, that's not the point, is it? The point is that it has it gotten into your heart, Right? It's about reflection, contemplation, letting it get in until we see. Well, what if I don't know it? That's okay. You have the Holy Spirit who said he'll teach you. We hold it. We hold it in our hearts. And we contemplate and we think on it. Man, it, it, and it's, it's truly not about perfection. It, it really is about reflection. It really is. You may not read it perfectly. You may not know it perfectly. You may miss a day or two. You may miss a month. But the idea is that you would reflect on it. And I believe the Bible has the power to do that. I mean, the church in China, the underground church in China, I mean, it's known that they have like rips and scraps of the Bible and they just reread them over and over and over. They don't even have the full story. We got the full 66 book and every language you can think of and every translation. You like that translation? Try a new translation. You got every translation you look at. You got it on your phone. And these people can take just a few scraps of scripture and just reread them over and over again and have a full revelation of God. Because it's alive. It's active. It's a fingerprint. You get a little piece of it, you're going to have all of it. So deeply reflect on the scriptures. Reflect on them. If you don't understand, what do you do? 
Yeah, ask the Holy Spirit, ask God. I don't understand, I want to though. I'm really trying to behold here, help me. Something clicks, it's happened to me time and time again. Lastly, we behold Jesus in others. Genesis 127, God said it, I've made man in my image. In Latin, we call that the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei, the image of God, image bearers of God. What the fall has done, it has marred that image, and now it is a broken image. Good things that are perverted and twisted, that are good, are just twisted. But Jesus has redeemed that image, and is redeeming that image in those who have turned to him. So now in Christ, we can see the image of God in his beloved. Like I said, when I meet somebody who's been beholding Jesus, right? Like for years, it's like, what do you see in him? Wow, you start seeing what Jesus is like, what God is like. We see it in us. Maybe that's kind of a new concept for you. Because maybe all you've seen is like the ugly. You've seen the broken. We all have. But man, when you meet someone who's been following him and it's in their heart, something shifts and you see him. We are his glory. The church is his fame. We are the body of Christ. The world sees us and they see him as we've beheld him as a community. We're the ones who will be clothed in white with him when he returns. That's our hope. We're the one who has the power of God on the inside to withstand every storm. We do that. And so as a community, this is why we come to church, right? It's, it's, it's like you can listen to messages online by yourself, but you come not just to hear, but to touch, to see, to behold. Living incarnational word. The church, the body of Christ. And so don't ever take your walk with God lightly. Other people in the body depend upon you. And so, you know what? Part of, part of why I open my Bible and, and I read and pray is, is yeah, for me. I want it in me. But it's not just so selfish to say that I just want to be like Jesus for me. I want to do it because I need my sons to see Jesus in me. I need my wife to see God in me. I need her to see that. I need my daughter who's eventually going to come. I need her to see Jesus in me. And so what do I do? I behold, get it in my heart. I need to be transformed. And he's faithful to do it every time. I need the world to see it. I need you to see it. I need to see it in you. And that's the beauty of Proverbs 27. Iron sharpens iron, right? We sharpen one another. We stir one another's faith. Don't you know the power that's on the inside of you? Right? Don't you know the hope to which you've been called? Yeah. Don't you know that you're his treasured possession? So we behold Jesus in Scripture. We behold Jesus. We behold Jesus in others.